There are moments that come in life where to speak feels like you're kind of violating what's sacred in the moment. You, you know the kind of moments I mean? Uh, you're watching the sunset, and just as it crests below the horizon, the, the sky lights up in a cascade of colors, blue and orange and yellow, and you're just left there, jaw hanging low, in, in awe of the beauty of God's world. Or the first time you you hold a child in your in your arms, and, and you're looking at the eyes and the face, and you realize there's something familiar because... It's yours, or it's you, it's a little bit of you. Or the last time you hold somebody's hand, knowing that you won't do so again this side of heaven. They're sacred moments. And the word that we use to describe those kind of moments is reverence. And if there is a prayer to be spoken in those moments... It's the prayer that Jesus taught in the second stanza, hallowed be your name. And if we have a place where we take all of those moments, metaphorically, in this great house of God that we have been constructing over the past weeks, making our way through the Lord's Prayer, the room that God escorts us into in those moments of of speechless reverence, of of sacred solitude. The room for that is the chapel. And, And unlike this, this chapel or sanctuary, if there's walls in the chapel in the great house of God, you don't even notice them. And there's no need for chairs or pews because you're not going to need them. And if, if what fills up your eyes is just the, the vastness of who God is, and what takes the place of the chair is just the open floor that drives you to your knees, then such is the chapel. Uh, the only piece of furniture in the room is a throne, and you're not on it. <laughs> you're on the floor in front of it. And if you're searching for the right words to speak, don't worry about it, because it's never been about the right words. It's about having the right heart, and it's not eloquence that God seeks. It's honesty. Those are lessons that we learn often in the most fragile and raw moments of our lives when words fail us. Uh, those are instructions or, or illustrative lessons that, that the Bible gives us at many different points through many different lives, but maybe no one more pointedly so or memorably so than, well, he has to be the patron saint of a life of adversity. The story of Job is recorded in the book in the Old Testament that bears his name in, in, in the book of Job. And he learned that lesson of being silent in the sacredness, the holiness, and the reverence of a God who is above all else, holy, hallowed. If Job had a fault, um, his fault was that he spoke too much. He was a talker. <laughs> uh, not that anybody could blame him. I mean, he had so much calamity that was just heaped into his life that at every at every turn, it seemed like he had to say something about what was going on. I mean, calamity just pounced on him like a, a lion attacking a herd of gazelles. By the end of day one in the story of Job, by the end of day one, enemies had slaughtered all of his cattle. Lightning had destroyed his flocks of sheep. 
Strong winds had brought down the walls of his home on top of his children who were left in the wreckage. That's just the first day. I mean, he hadn't even hung up the phone with State Farm to put in his insurance claim before he looks down on his hands and sees, what's this? Leprosy and boils on his skin. His wife, being the wise, compassionate, God-oriented servant that she was, came to Job and said, Job, why don't you just curse God and die? Not all advice is good advice. (laughs) So maybe the better advice is coming. Because next in the long line of those who want to give Job advice, we love giving advice when things go south. These four friends with the bedside manner of drill sergeants, these are the ones that, that, that every first year ministry student at Bible college or seminary studies when you want to learn what not to do when challenging somebody in the middle of adversity. But here were these four friends who who came alongside Job to tell him that obviously God is fair, and so therefore the lot that you have in life is also fair. The evil that you're going through in a kind of two plus two equals four formula is surely a sign that God has unearthed the criminal record in your past and you are being punished. This suffering that you're going through is God's will and plan for you. And each one of these friends had had an interpretation for who God was and what he was doing. And they spoke, spoke long and out loud about this. They weren't the only ones talking about about God, because Job was also talking. In fact, if there is a structure to the book of Job, it it is this this ongoing dialogue, and it breaks down neatly, chapter after chapter. Let me show you. Job chapter 3, verse 1 begins, and Job cried out, and you get a whole chapter of it. And then Eliphaz the Temanite answered. And then chapter 4, you get his response. And then chapter 6, and then Job answered. And then chapter 8, and then Bildad the Shuhite answered. And then chapter 9, Job answered. And then back and forth, Zophath the Naamathite answered. And this verbal ping pong happens for 23 chapters. And finally, I think Job is just fed up with all of this answering that's going on. No more discussion group chit-chat, time for the keynote address. He reaches for the mic, he places one hand on the pulpit, and for six chapters, Job gives his opinions on God. And time after time, the chapter headings read like this, and Job continued, and Job continued, and Job Continued. He defines God. He explains God. He offers his own review of God. You get the impression that Job knows more about God than God knows about God. And on he goes. And we are now 37 chapters deep into the book of Job. When at last, God clears his throat and begins to speak. And chapter 38 begins with these words. Then the Lord answered Job. But if your Bible is like mine, there is a mistake in the way that this is printed. I mean, the words are fine, but the printer used the wrong type size, the wrong typeface. It ought to look like this, all caps, all bold, all underlined. And then at last, the Lord answered Job. God speaks and everybody else grows silent. 
which inevitably is what happened when God speaks. And faces turn up towards the sky and and people start to run for cover and cats go up the trees and dogs hide in the bushes. And God has no more opened his mouth than Job knows he ought to have kept his shut. Listen to what he says. This is in Job in chapter 8, beginning in verse 3. Brace yourself. Brace yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. Here it comes. Job Where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Tell me if you understand. Who marked off its vast dimensions? Surely you know. Who stretched a measuring line across it? On what were its footings set? Or who laid out its cornerstone while the morning stars sang together and the angels shouted for joy? For the next three chapters... God is going to flood the sky with questions, and Job cannot help but get the point. Only God defines God. It's kind of like this. I mean, Job, you've you've got to know the alphabet before you can read. You don't even know the ABCs about who God is, much less the vocabulary. And so for the first time, after 37 chapters of this, Job grows silent. Silenced by a torrent of questions that aren't meant to elicit answers. They are meant to elicit reverence. Job 38, verse 16. Hey, Job, have you journeyed to the springs of the sea or walked in the very recesses of the deep? Hey, Job, can you bind the chains of the Pleiades and loosen Orion's belt? Can you bring forth the constellations in their seasons? Job, is it you that gave the horse its strength or clothed its neck in a flowing mane? Do you make it leap like a locust, striking terror with its proud snorting? Job, does the hawk take flight by your wisdom, spread its wings toward the south? Does it soar at your command? Job barely has time to shake his head no to each one of the questions before the next one comes. And and God's point seems kind of clear. As soon as you're able to handle these simple matters of, of sorting out the stars and stretching out the heavens, then we can talk about the minute of what's going on in the world or your life. But until then, we can do without so much of your commentary. I wonder if Job got the message. I think he did. Uh, Listen to his response. This is Job chapter 40 in verse 4. Job says, I am unworthy. How can I reply? I put my hand over my mouth. We've seen this before in scripture, haven't we? And we will see it again. The next time we see it is going to be when one of God's other better-known servants, a man named Isaiah, finds himself in the very living presence of God. God who is described as, and you sang it already this morning, holy, holy, holy. And what does he say in the presence of God who is above all else holy? I am a man of unclean lips. From a people of unclean lips. It is the nature of being in the presence of God that our questions grow silent 
and our words disappear. It's a well-known, maybe not well-known in our generation, but in previous generations, a well-known Christian writer, a writer of theology and philosophy and worldview. His name was Thomas Akempis. Wrote volumes profusely about the character of God. But then one day, he said God confronted him with such holy grace that from that moment on, all of Akempis' words felt like straw. And he put down his pen and he never wrote another line. It's like he put his hand over his mouth. The word we use to describe those kind of moments, again, is reverence. The place for those moments is the chapel. And if there is a prayer for those moments, it is the second stanza of the Lord's Prayer. Hallowed be your name. You say that with me. Hallowed be your name. You realize in saying that, you're not making a proclamation. It's not, God, your name is holy. You're making a petition. Hallowed be your name. Would you be holy for me in my life? When we enter the chapel, that is our heart's cry. Be hallowed, Lord. Do whatever it takes to become holy in my life. Take your rightful place on the throne of my life. Exalt yourself and magnify yourself and glorify yourself. You be Lord. And maybe for a change, I'll be quiet. That word hallowed, hallowed be your name. uh, It's a form, an old English form of the word holy. And the word holy doesn't mean often what we think it means. What do we think it means? I I think that most of us have this idea that holy is a kind of uh, Puritan-like moral perfection. You know, that the God knows the rules, made the rules, always follows the rules, never breaks the world rules, that he is, he is morally elite. And surely God is all of those things. But that's not exactly what the word holy means. It's not so much about morality that includes it. The word, mora- the word holy means separate. You remember a few weeks ago, we were roaming around the great house of God and we were in the observatory We were watching as the vast canvas of the heavens opened up. And we were just, we were claiming the reminder that God dwells in a realm of existence that is vastly different from our own. He is in every way that matters separate. Our thoughts are not like his thoughts. Our ways are not like his ways. In fact, literally the word holy doesn't just mean to separate, it means to cut. To cut. And it doesn't just mean that, that God is cut off from us, because we know Jesus is about just the opposite. It means that God is a cut above. He's just a cut above everything that we are. The Holy One dwells in a way and in a realm that is vastly different from us. The things that frighten us, don't frighten Him. The things that trouble us, don't trouble Him. The things that exhaust us. They don't exhaust him. I'm admittedly a little bit more of a landlubber than a sailor, but I've, I've spent a little bit of time on boats, uh, enough to know some of the very basics, the right side, the left side, starboard, port, front, the back, you know, the bow, the stern. Uh, but one of the most important lessons is the lesson of navigation. 
And one of the key things that you learn as you're learning to navigate a boat is what to do in the event of an emergency, a storm, or a failure on the boat, or lack of visibility. What do you do when you cannot get home? And the one thing that, that you're instructed very carefully not to do is to fix your sights on the wrong object. So don't get distracted by the roll of waves around you. Don't point your boat at the lights on the horizon if it turns out that that's just another boat, which often it is, or a buoy or a lane marker. In order to get safely home in the storm, you point your boat at the one stable object, the one light on the shore, the lighthouse, and you let that be your guide. When you seek God in that way, in the chapel of God's great house, you're really doing the same. You're setting your sights on God, who is a cut above us. You're setting your sights on God in the middle of the storms of life, knowing that this is the one dependable constant. And this will get you safely home. And maybe like Job, you find a little bit of peace in the middle of all of the pain. Probably like Job, when you realize that you're in the chapel and that you're not alone, that God who is a cut above, holy, holy, holy is with you, you may find physically or metaphorically you covering your mouth and just entering into the reverent quiet of that moment. Psalm 46.10, beautiful psalm. Be still and know that I am God. That's a verse that has both a command and a promise. The command, be still. Cover your mouth. Bend your knees. And the promise, you will know that I am God. It's the gift for for those who spend time lingering in the chapel. And I, I hope on this long weekend there's time for you to do that. You're here now. But God's chapel is is open and available wherever you are. It's not a building that you have to hop in your car and drive to. In the middle of the of the storms and the calamity of life, make a point to set your sights on Him and, and intentionally seek Him out in the chapel of His presence. Let God be God. And let Him bathe you in the presence that will take your breath away. And maybe suck the troubles out of your soul. Be still. Be quiet. Be open and willing. And then you will know that God is God and you cannot help but declare, hallowed be your name. In fact, let's, let's declare that together. Let's... Let's offer those words together, all of them, the words that Jesus taught us, the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, we say it with me, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come. We forgive those who trespass against us. You just not into temptation. Deliver us from evil. Is the kingdom, power, and the glory forever and ever.
Amen. Hmm.